Welcome to the Veteran and Military Affairs channel on Mainly Matters, Maine's most listened to podcast platform. I'm Colonel Retired Jack Mosier to discuss matters relating to Maine's vast population of veterans and our military service members across the nation. This program, we're extremely fortunate to have a great friend, mentor, and fellow veteran, Major General Retired, is here, Greg Martin. I'm going to read his uh, rather lengthy bio so you realize what a special person we have that we're talking to today. Greg F. Martin, Ph.D., Major General, U.S. Army, retired, served on active duty for 36 years until May of 2015. He is a combat veteran, a bipolar survivor, airborne ranger, engineer, and is an Army strategist. He holds a Ph.D. in two master's degrees from MIT, a master's degree in national security strategy from both the Army and Naval War Colleges, and a bachelor's degree from West Point. He commanded an engineer company, Battalion, the 130th Engineer Brigade in combat during the first year of the Iraq War in 2003 and 4, including the attack from Kuwait up the Euphrates River Valley to Baghdad and beyond. He served multiple overseas tours and, as a general officer, commanded the the Corps of Engineers Northwest Division. He was Commandant of the Army Engineer School, commanded Fort Leonard Wood, and was Deputy Commanding General of Third Army U.S. Central, U.S. Army Central. He was the Commandant of the Army War College, President of the National Defense University, and Special Assistant to the Chief of Engineers. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal twice, the Bronze Star Medal, and the Combat Action Badge. He is married with three sons, two of whom are Army combat veterans, and one an artist. His daughter-in-law is also an Army combat veteran. His wife, an Army brat, and heroine for preserving through their Army career and surviving overcoming their bipolar ordeal, which has been the toughest fight of their lives. They live in Cocoa Beach, Florida, where he is writing speaking and sharing his story of battling bipolar disorder to help save lives and stop the stigma. Welcome, General Martin. It's great to talk to you today, Greg. Thank you, Jack. Uh, it's great being on with you, and greetings to all your listeners in Maine. We know that you started your military career in Maine at the University of Maine ROTC program in 1974 and 1975. Yes, sure did. Uh, I went after high school in 1974, just as Vietnam War was winding down, and got to the University of Maine, and I, I was a walk-on to Army ROTC, uh, no scholarship. The big motivator to join ROTC was, in order to be a member of the uh, Ranger Club there on campus, you had to be a member of ROTC, and I really wanted to be in that club because they did all sorts of outside hua things like mountaineering, whitewater rafting, et cetera. So I joined ROTC. Um, I liked it. I did pretty well. I got a B, which was, you know, pretty good grade for me. And, uh, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, then I, uh, I applied to the service academies while I was at Maine, got into West Point, and then, you know, launched the next phase of my Army experience at West Point. So you jumped from the long blue line to the long gray line. Is that true? <laughs> exactly. While the rest of us soldiered on at the University of Maine, suffering through multiple fraternity parties and other things, you had to, you took the easy ride at West Point. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, That's I'm, exactly it. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you here today, Greg, because right now in our veterans community, there's a lot of discussion out there about the state of our, of you know, 1.4 million veterans from our war, the, the global war on terror. And a lot of that discussion centers around behavioral health, behavioral health treatment, risk reduction, and of course, the issue of suicide, which continues to churn on. So I was wondering if today for our, our listeners, you would tell us the story of the odyssey that you yourself have, have traveled with your family. Sure thing. Um, I'll sort of start at the beginning and try to consolidate this story. But, you know, growing up from teenage years on, 
my personality is what uh, in psychiatry is called a hyperthymic personality, or it's hyperthymia. And what it is, what that means is that uh, I had a form of mild, high-performing mania from teenage years into my 40s until bipolar kicked in. And what that did is it gave me an advantage biochemically in my brain. I had higher than normal levels of energy, enthusiasm, drive, creativity. So I was extremely successful through high school, West Point, and as a junior officer out in the Army. Right. And, you know, I had this everywhere I went, I was extremely successful and was noted for those qualities I just mentioned. And that helped make me a very successful army officer. Well, you're heavily rewarded for those characteristics, heavily rewarded, especially in a military culture. Big time. Um, But what was happening is that my, my mild mania was getting, was getting little by little, it was getting higher and higher to where I was kind of starting to get a little bit over the top, a little bit out of control, a little bit of a wild man. And, um, and then Fast forward a couple of years to uh, the Iraq War, 2003, I was a brigade, brigade commander of combat engineers with thousands of soldiers, and it was, you know, very challenging, very stressful, you know, the combat operations and all that. Of course. And what, what, what that stress did is it triggered what was a pre, uh, it was like a pre-genetic, it was a predisposition for bipolar in my DNA. So the DNA for bipolar was sitting, you know, kind of dormant inside of my brain, but the extremely high stress of the war triggered it. And I went into mania. I mean, real mania, but it was, I was lucky. It was a high performing mania as opposed to an acute mania where I went into a state of madness. And so during the year in Iraq, I performed extremely well, was a very successful brigade commander, you know, everything Everything went really well. Well, it's one of the toughest jobs any officer is confronted with, sir. I mean, it's really important for people that are listeners to realize that a brigade commander in combat is is where it all happens, especially in an engineer-intensive conflict like that one. Exactly. Um, And then we redeployed after a year, went back to Germany, and what happened was once I was no longer in the combat zone, and by the way, when I was in the combat zone, my energy levels were incredible. I felt like Superman, felt fearless, felt like I could do anything. Um, there were even times I felt like I was like levitating up off the ground and looking out across the battlefield, which should have been some kind of an indicator to me that, whoa, this is not normal. <laughs> but but it, it didn't. I just The bipolar was unknown, undetected, undiagnosed. But when we got back to Germany and we did the um, the health screening when you when you redeploy, um, I all the adrenaline and the dopamine and the endorphins, these chemicals in my brain, it it all went away. It was unsustainable. Is that correct? I mean, you're coming it, out of, it, coming out of this incredible experience. I mean, many people experience this. You come out of this incredible experience where you've been working 18, 20, 20 hours a day you know, over and over and over again in a continuous cycle. Then you pulled from that back to Germany, post-deployment review. Was there a crash period that followed that? Yes. I, I crashed into depression for about 10 months. And um, it was it was really bad. It wasn't crippling depression, but it was pretty debilitating. I mean, you know, very low energy, low motivation, inability to concentrate, felt terrible, um, and I told the medical people, I said, hey, I, they said, how are you doing after the, after the deployment? I said, I think I'm depressed. I feel terrible. And I described it. And they, they asked the standard questions. Are you suicidal? No. Right, Do you right. want to hurt yourself? No. Do you want to hurt others? No. They said, okay, you're fine. But I wasn't fine. I, I was entering the depressive phase of the up, down, mania, depression cycles of bipolar and I basically, what saved me from the depression was the structure of army life. I mean, I had to get up. I had to go to PT. I had to go to meetings. And faced I with more responsibilities. Were you, were you promoted to general officer at this point? Uh, um, I was promoted pretty quickly to general officer, to, right. to one star. Yeah, coming out of a and, successful command like that, of course you were. So, right. so, so immediately, you're back in 
back in the fight, so to speak, back in a really intense battle rhythm. Our general officers were at crazy hours. You're traveling, massive responsibility. Did that again fuel those dopamine and endorphin rushes and bring you back to a maniac, maniac level, mani- a manic level? I mean, excuse me, a manic level of the bipolar cycle. Yes. So what happened was after the the first year of the war, over the next decade, my bipolar unknowingly dominated my life. I started going into higher levels of mania and then lower levels of depression, and it continued to get worse and worse and worse until I literally went into full-blown mania. You could call it madness is what they used to call it. And I, my brain unraveled. I spun out of control, uh, lost the trust, faith, confidence of my organization. And my boss was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Martin Gen- Dempsey. General Dempsey, of course. Yeah. Wonderful guy. I had, I had known him for 17 years. He was, a, he was a friend, too, wasn't he? Wasn't he, was, he correct? Yeah. yeah. Friend. He was, he, but basically, he did a series of – he was shocked at the reports that were coming in about how – over the top I had become and how my people, the faculty, the administrators, the students had lost confidence in me because I was so erratic that I was I was really a negative force at the school. Even though I had done a great job and had carried out the transformation that he put me there to do to transform the university and the curriculum and all that. But he, after three independent, you know, objective assessments, he basically called me in and he said, hey, Greg, I love you like a brother. You're, you're doing an incredible job. You've transformed the university in just two years. However, based on your mental health behavior, I have to pull you out of there. And I'm going to give you till five o'clock today to either resign or I will relieve you of command. And so I resigned, of course. Um, and then he said, and I'm, I'm command referring you to go to Walter Reed and get a mental health exam. So that was a pretty big day. That's a tough conversation between, you know, two senior officials at that point. You must have been looking at your third star by then, for crying out loud. I mean, National Defense University, that's one of those stepping stones, you know, to even higher levels of command. Yes. And, you know, I think I was, you know, very competitive for a third star. But Dempsey did clearly the right thing. He was taking care of me, my health, my family, and the organization by pulling me out. So he, I, I, he did exactly the right thing. And um, but I was so manic and so high with the with the symptoms of grandiosity and religiosity and so forth. It didn't phase me. It didn't. I I gave him a big hug and I was smiling. <laughs> said, "Hey, thank you, Chairman." And I believed God had removed me from NDU and was going to give me an even bigger, better, more important job. And I walked out of his office just happy as I could be. And uh, But over the next four months, and by the way, I had three psychiatric evaluations. In all three of them, the doctor said, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You're fit for duty. Go back to work. And while I was acutely manic. But over the next four months, I spiraled, then crashed into crippling, dark, hopeless depression. Predictably at that point, of course. I mean, that would be a a natural part of the cycle, having that kind of pressure cooker taken off that kept you in the manic phase. Then you turn to face, you know, the, the reality of the situation that you found yourself in. Yes. And so I went in on emergency sick call to Walter Reed to see the same doctors that had evaluated me back in July. And once they recognized the depression and they put the pieces of the puzzle together with the reports of mania prior and the, you know, the removal from the NDU position, they put it all together and they said, we are diagnosing you with bipolar disorder type one, uh, which means you're more manic than depressed where type two, you're more depressed than manic. Right. And so basically, I was in terrible shape. I started getting psychosis, these terrifying delusions of my own death, my morbid death that I was going to be, you know, in jail, in prison, you know, stabbed and beaten to death, you know, dying in my own puddle of blood. Uh, I had delusions that I would be thrown underneath the wheels of an 18 wheeler or get a head on collision. And so I was a wreck, crippling depression, terrifying delusions. And then I, I retired from the Army in 2015. Right. 
And for about two, and then moved to New Hampshire where we had a home. But for about two years, I was literally in a fight for my life uh, because I was in such a terrible state of mental health. And finally, a very dedicated, loyal friend um, helped get me into the VA in White River Junction, which has a, in Vermont, they have a really good psychiatric program. And the thing that was a game changer was the psychiatrist said, he asked the standard questions. Are you suicidal? No. Do you want to hurt anybody? No. And then he asked a question no one else asked. And this should be SOP for psychiatrists. He said, do you have any morbid visions or thoughts of death and dying? And I kind of scratched my head and I said, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. I, I do. <laughs> he said, well, describe them. So I did. He said, how often do you have them? I said, all the time. He said, whoa, that's called a passive suicidal ideation. And the danger is they can easily, rapidly transform from passive to active. He said, we need to keep you here. I want to admit you to the psychiatric ward, and we'll keep you here as long as we think it's going to do you some good. So I spent you know, weeks in the psychiatric ward, and um, that was a game changer. And you know, going back to my diagnosis at Walter Reed and then at White River Junction, one of the things that I was fortunate with is I accepted I have a mental illness. I embraced, I have a mental illness. And I said, I want to get better. I will do whatever you guys tell me, you know, therapy, medication, you name it, I'll do it to get better. And you have to have that kind of determination. And even though I was in a, the inpatient psych ward and they did a fabulous job, which I could talk about how good the VA was, but it still took months before I got the right combination of medications that stabilized my brain to where I pulled out of the um, depression. And it wasn't until September of 2016 when they uh, they prescribed lithium, which is a natural salt, LI3. It's on the chemical periodical table. And within two to three days of taking lithium, I felt like my old self. The depression lifted. I felt great. And then that was five years ago, we moved to Florida where the sunshine and the warmth and the brightness has a really positive biochemical effect on my brain. And for five years, I basically have been rebuilding my life. And, you know, at this point, I am ha happy, healthy, marriage and family are great, have a wonderful network of friends. And I live a very disciplined approach to my life because the bipolar is still in my brain. And I have to live a really healthy life and avoid stress and anger and anxiety to keep it at bay so I can stay healthy. Is, uh, just, wow, Greg. I mean, just what a, what an incredible experience. I had a, a thousand questions during your description of, of this journey, you know, but I didn't want to interrupt you in the middle of you as you're, as you're sharing all of this. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, the, the, the effect or what it, what it must have been like for your family, you know, you're after, thir I mean, 36 years in the military, the entire adult life, you know, from post high school until, until your, your mature years as a senior military officer, having that stripped away, you know, almost overnight, and then false, not false diagnoses, but I mean, starting with your departure from Iraq and your post deployment, you know, physical, I mean, what, why would they think any different? You've just been through a war in a very high-stress situation. Of course, they could chalk this up to any 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 number of of uh, of conditions, you know, from possibly PTSD, leaving command, the rush of leaving combat. It wouldn't have been so obvious then, you know. And the Jack, you hit a very key point. These mental health disorders are very difficult for even the smartest psychiatrists to diagnose because they can be covered with layers of all sorts of different factors, like the ones you just described. Um, you know, one of the things they asked me when I got back from Iraq, you know, they asked me, are you suicidal and all that? And I told them how bad I felt that I was depressed. They said, well, how do you deal with it? How are you managing this depression? And I told them, well, number one, I'm an army officer. I have to get up. I have to go to work. I have to put one foot in front of the other. I have no choice, number one. Number two, I try to think happy, positive thoughts. I recite, you know, key, powerful Bible verses that give me strength and hope. 
Um, I listen to motivational music of all different kinds, whether it's, you know, classic rock or church music, whatever makes me feel inspired. And physical training, and, of course. We all do and, physical training, and, right? Yeah. And, and PT or physical training is critical to get the blood flowing and get the endorphins moving. And then, but the other thing I told them, I said, since I got back from Iraq, you know, I've never drank too, I've always drank alcohol, but not too much. And I'm drinking more and more and more to self-medicate myself. Right. And they, and so what they said is, okay, other than the drinking, which you, you, you need to cut back on that, you're doing all the right things. We think you're fine. Just keep doing that. And I had no history of mental illness. No. You know, so they didn't put the pieces together, even though I described my behavior and thinking and my feeling in Iraq, which they should have been able to pick up that I was probably manic. But again, it's not easy to figure this out. So I don't blame the doctors. No, it's not easy to figure it out when your entire career is one of, you know, success based on a high energy individual, highly intelligent, highly successful. Why would anybody think anything different than that? They don't. And and one of the things when these doctors, they look at a successful colonel, like you just said, and a successful general, and, and they think they, the last thing they think of is mental health disorder, whereas they might see it or think of it in a younger soldier or younger officer or, or NCO. Um, they just don't even think it. They just say, no, that's it's not something they consider. And and even those closest to you, your your closest confidants, colleagues, maybe even family members could could watch these manic phases. I mean, we had many many hours around the fire pit here, you know, at Gold Star Outfitters, where you were describing some of these these madness features that you're that you were talking to me about, which seemed to me as a person who at that point didn't know you that well. Like, there's some real red flags with this remarkable general officer just you know anecdotal as you were describing them to me you know one of what of course was the use of alcohol but just you know as you kind of as you described earlier became more and more kind of erratic in your decision making public remarks maybe i don't know some of these things should should have been even more red flags for others around you before maybe it got to general dempsey's evaluation you know senior senior evaluator did anybody in your colleague circle ever say, hey, General, hey, Greg, I'm concerned about you during these manic phases? The only one person back around 2005, 2006, when I was with the Corps of Engineers, one of my senior executive service, general officer, equivalent civilian, came in and talked to me and you know had great moral courage because it's hard to come in and tell the boss. Yes, think, of course. You've been the boss since you were a captain, you know, so of course, yeah. So she came in and said, hey, I want to talk to you, sir, in private. You know, <clears throat> I think there you may have something wrong with your health. And what she keyed in on was that I was falling asleep in meetings, in briefings. I appeared to be disinterested in the technical subject matter that I was having a hard time grasping the details and the content of what the the people were briefing me on. She said, I, I think, you know, you really need to get checked out. And I think step one, you're not getting enough sleep. She talked to me because she said, you know, I'm getting texts and emails. And she was my number two in the command. Right. She said, I'm getting texts and emails from you at midnight. And then I know you're up at five doing PT. She said, you're not getting enough sleep. Your brain needs sleep. And, um, you know, I took her... Uh, her comments to heart, and I tried to get to bed earlier and discipline myself not to be sending emails and text messages so late at night, which are really distracting and troublesome to subordinates. Um, so I appreciated it, but there was no connection to mental health. It was just an, a worry about sleep, and uh, but I appreciated it. You know, after I was diagnosed and I wrote my manuscript for my book and I started writing these articles, I went back and talk to as many people that I worked with, subordinates, peers, and superiors, all the way back to lieutenant days through National Defense University. And I said, hey, you know, here's this article I just wrote. I have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. 
I think I had a steady buildup to it during my entire career, and then it went into it in Iraq, and then it got worse through till NDU. Did you see, now here are the characteristics and symptoms of bipolar, which are extreme religiosity, grandiosity, you know, flight of ideas, rapid pressured speaking, inability to concentrate, you know, excessive risk taking, inability to keep control of, to keep track of time, you know, missing whole pieces of meetings and things you're supposed to do and where you're at. And I could go on, but those are some of the main symptoms, you know, over-the-top energy, enthusiasm, and so forth. And going all the way back, <laughs> people said, you know, now that you mention it, yes. Of course. Now that you mention it, it goes all the way back. This has been... And again, but the, these behaviors, for the most part, these habits are heavily rewarded in a military culture. You get medals and awards and assignments from being a workaholic perfectionist with great ideas and energy. And and, and so the, the, the rewarding of these behaviors, of course, and again, you just mentioned, Greg, that not a lot of people are going to walk into their boss's office and say, hey, sir, I'm really concerned for your behavior. I'm concerned that you're... You know, you're sleeping three hours, four hours a night. That's going to affect anybody in a very profound way. Yes. And you hit one of the key things. You know, first off, it was unknown by me, my wife, the people I worked with. It was undetected, undiagnosed for all those years. And so the reason you say, well, well, why? Why didn't anybody see it? Well, you know, during those days, and I, I don't know if it's changed too much, people aren't trained in how to detect or recognize the major the symptoms of the major mental illnesses or mental health problems they're just not trained so people saw my bizarre erratic over the top behavior but they didn't know what they were seeing they just thought well that's the general he's you know he's kind of eccentric yeah he's, he's just high a, another eccentric genius with a phd for a, a, mit of course he's going to be a weirdo in some ways you know that's right you know, and look at Patton. look at all of our great generals in history they all they were all eccentric in that in in so many in so many ways exactly like that it makes you wonder it, you know, like like when i was at ndu where it got over the top and i was removed from command People at NDU would call back to people at the Army War College or at Fort Leonard Wood or the Corps of Engineers or 130th Engineer Brigade. They'd say, hey, you know, what's up with General Martin? Um, we're, here's what we're seeing. And then the people that worked with me before said, oh, yeah, that's just how he is. You know, he's a great guy. You know, it's, he's, he goes so fast, he's hard to keep up with. But, you know, if you don't keep up with him, he's very forgiving, you know, as long as you're trying. And so... It was incremental change over a period of years, and people just didn't recognize it. And then when it got really severe at the end, like in 2014, nobody is willing to go up to their boss and say, hey, I think you have a serious mental illness. It looks to me, you know, I did some research, it looks to me like you have bipolar disorder. I mean, nobody does that. And they did, subordinates did go up and talk to, like I had some very high level people at NDU. Like I had, you know, three general officers that worked for me, a bunch of SESs, you know, yes. senior civilians. Yes, right. I had an ambassador. So people did go to them and say, hey, we think this guy is losing it. But they didn't know how to approach me. They wanted to sugarcoat things and not offend me and things like that. And you know, people just have to be informed, they have to be candid, and they have to put the good of the organization and the health of the individual ahead of being afraid to tell tell it like it is. But that said, I understand people are afraid that you'll, they'll offend the boss and they could get their career hurt or ended. So it's a tricky situation. But I do. I'm writing a paper right now that lays out the reasons why nobody detected it or talked to me or did anything until the very end. And I just covered most of them. It's really important. You know, it's really important to recognize that. You know, one of the things you mentioned family, people also didn't want to confront me on it because they said, well, you know, he lives with his wife. If she doesn't see a problem, why should I see a problem? And then you talk to the wife and she wrote a really good section in my manuscript that it'll be a book next year. She said, well, 
the first time I met Greg when he was a second lieutenant, he had super high energy, enthusiasm, drive. That's what I liked about him. I got attracted to him. He was so much fun. <laughs> and I gradually, over the years and decades, it slowly increased. But she said, I was like a frog in the pot of water. It was so incremental and slow. I never recognized it until the very end. Um, my kids said the same thing. Um, but I'll tell you, talking about family, they were critical. They, they never gave up on me. They didn't bail out or abandon me. The kids stayed loyal, faithful, concerned. Uh, my wife, just as hard as it was, she kept persevering one step in front of the other. And, you know, a lot of spouses, you know, wives or husbands will leave their spouse when they're in a severe mental illness because it's just too hard to deal with. It's too painful. They leave because they can't take it anymore and to preserve their own sanity. And I said, well, why did you stay with me? And she said, you know, the biggest other than, you know, hey, you're my husband. I love you. Um, but she said the fact that you accepted it, embraced it and worked as hard as you could to get better. That's what you know, kept me to stick with you. If you had given up or just quit or didn't try, you know, I may very well have left. I mean, that, that really brings us, Greg, to, to a central point of our conversation today is how do we encourage others who may be suffering, diagnosed or undiagnosed, to demonstrate the help-seeking behavior that you so bravely stepped forward, not only to do yourself, but to lead others in. How to? Because military culture doesn't exactly celebrate help-seeking behavior. We have a kind of a suck-it-up-and-drive-on mentality. I think that's changed over the last several years. But how do we encourage others to step forward and do the work, so to speak, of seeking and accepting the treatment that they need, as they would for any other illness or injury that they might be experiencing? How do we change that? I think, first off, from the institutional level, like, you know, the army or the military, all the way down to the individual soldiers and family members, you know, privates and so forth, um, everybody has to recognize and accept and believe that, you know, mental illness or mental health disorders are real. They're not make-believe it's not due to a lack of character or a lack of willpower or you're not trying hard enough. I mean, these are real physiological phenomena that go on inside, you know, the body's, the human body's most important organ, which is the brain. It's so like nobody, if you have a stomach ailment or, you know, a liver ailment or a heart ailment, nobody says oh, you're just not trying hard enough, or it's not real, you're just, it's in <laughs> right. your mind. They say, no, let's go in and, and check this organ out and let's understand it and diagnose it and get a, you know, medical, professional medical help and get on with healing it so you can be healthy and live a good life. But there's still people, you know, who are truly ignorant and don't believe that when it comes to the brain. They think somehow the brain as an organ is different in people, it's their fault. So I think, number one, you have to accept that and, and deal with it. And if you do accept it, then the idea of a stigma or shame and embarrassment that you have a mental health problem, it can't stand on its own two feet. I mean, it, it makes no sense and it's totally illogical for someone to feel stigmatized or ashamed or embarrassed if, in fact, the brain malady is real then there's, by definition, there should be no stigma attached. And stigma is the leading reason why people are reluctant to go get medical help because they're embarrassed and they're ashamed. Um, so if we got to get past the stigma, and then if people do have a problem, or even before the problem, they got to go get help. So what do I mean by that? You know, the military is really big on physical fitness. You know, your body, people, you run, you do push-ups, do cross huge, And that's great. And everybody accepts how important it is to have a healthy body. But having a healthy brain and a healthy mind and having good mental health, it is at least as important, maybe more important. And so, you know, there was a really good article in um, uh, Military Times a month or two ago about the commander of Fort Riley, General Sims, 
that he has really initiated a a preemptive mental health program across First Infantry Division and and uh, Fort Riley, where you treat mental health and mental fitness with the same level of importance and focus all the way up and down the chain of command as you do physical fitness. And he's put a great program into effect. And so every soldier has to get checked for their mental wellness. And even if you're healthy and you don't have any any brain disorder, you still have to learn what. how do you keep your brain healthy? Plenty of sleep, drink plenty of water, eat a healthy diet figure out how to relieve stress, figure out, you know, maybe meditative techniques, um, avoid anxiety. Here's some techniques to deal with it. Um, you know, avoid anger, avoid rage. And here's how you can put mental techniques into effect, because those are the things that can ramp you up into mania or down into depression. So you need a proactive pro- program. And in having that, you take a lot of the stigma and the shame away because everybody gets 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 checked for their mental fitness, even if you're totally healthy. And then we'll begin to detect the people who maybe do have a problem, and we can start dealing with them early earlier in the in the spectrum. And maybe we can mitigate or preempt or even even you know stop the onset of some of these mental illnesses. And then once people begin to accept this and they're in the program, and some, then you have the, you know, the people who actually do have real mental illness, um, they can get help. The, the stigma's you know, really diminished and they can go get the help they need. And you know, nobody feels stigmatized or ashamed. Like if you're an infantryman or a paratrooper and you tear your knee apart and you get help to get your knee repaired, and then even if you get medically boarded out of the army because you can't be an infantryman with a you know really bad knee, nobody feels, you might feel bad that you hurt your knee and that you are being medically boarded out, but there's no shame, there's no stigma, and it should be the same attitude towards mental health. It should be, it should be, and that's a, that's a you know, a, a long, maybe a longer term goal of military culture shift. I'm glad to hear about the commander for Riley taking that step forward. I hope it becomes a trend in, in all the military posts. I mean, one of the benefits, I don't call it a benefit, but one of the effects of having a 20 year war is we've learned an awful lot about behavioral health, about PTSD, TBIs, and all these different things that are affecting our, again, 1.4 million veterans out there just from this war alone. We're not even talking about the largest cohort of veterans, which is now our Vietnam era veterans. So as we learn more about how to diagnose uh, behavioral health problems and mental illness, then also the, of course, the treatment for them must follow. And I hope the Army, the Veterans Health Administration, and other uh, support organizations to include veteran service organizations respond accordingly to that. I agree. Um, we have improved significantly in the last 20 years. I mean, I think back to pre-war, um, I think the level of attention and knowledge and emphasis was very, very low, and it's increased greatly to, to where we are today. I mean, I think there was some acceptance of PTSD because we learned that after the Vietnam War, there was kind of a you know this steady increase in Vietnam veterans you know, committing suicide, being depressed. And then we kind of discovered, you know, what really is PTSD? I mean, it is a real factor inside the brain that then is a contributor to depression and suicide and all the rest. But I think at the start of the 20-year war, you know, we, we probably had a pretty good understanding of PTSD, but I don't think we had much understanding of the other factors that when combined with depression and other mental illness can lead to you know, an increase in suicides. Like, I don't remember anybody talking about traumatic brain injury, TBI. I never, I don't remember people talking about survivor's guilt. I don't remember hearing about moral injury. I didn't hear people talk about how much the experience of combat can lead to, to severe depression or bipolar disorder. Um, you know, there just wasn't a real understanding of that. And I think because the problems grew so much during the 20 years of war that we learned more and we put more emphasis on it and we're getting better steadily all the time. It's, it's, it's true. And, and of course, your career over the over the 36 years that you served has bridged this entire 
generation's experience. You know, 74, 75, those years were not great years in the United States military coming out of Vietnam. And we, of course, have had a great benefit from that generation and kind of paving the way for our generation to receive the support, not just from the from the American people, but from uh, government resources and otherwise to, to help us. And we should take advantage of those every chance we get. We get. I mean, uh, Greg, I've gone. We've gone through all of the questions that I had for you, um, in, in your in your great descriptions of everything. But the last question I have is. What advice do you have for fellow veterans and their families or anybody who might be listening who is struggling out there? Great question. If you're struggling, um, and family members should be able to detect this and see it, friends can probably see it and detect it, although sometimes the symptoms are not obvious or the person is hiding the symptoms, go get professional medical help. Go see a doctor. Um, get in and see a therapist who are typically psychologists. And then get in and see a psychiatrist who are, is a medical doctor who can prescribe medications. Get in there. Be completely honest. Tell it like it is. Don't hide anything. Don't sugarcoat it. Tell it like it is because otherwise they won't know. Um, I would say if you are married, bring your spouse or closest friend who may see it into the meeting to, to fill in parts and pieces of the description that you may forget to say, or you don't even see yourself. Like I love it when my wife comes because it gives another set of um, eyes to the, to the issue, but, but be honest and, you know, just think, you know, think about this stuff. Cause a lot of, for a lot of veterans, what makes it hard to diagnose and treat mental health disorders is the combination of factors. So you might have depression or bipolar disorder, which are you know, serious mental illnesses in and of themselves. But then you layer on these other factors like PTSD or traumatic brain injury or survivor's guilt. It, it can become a very complex um, web of issues it make it really hard for the doctors to completely diagnose and come up with the right medication. And sometimes it takes years to get the right diagnosis and the right medication. And I would just say, you got to fight through it. It's tough. It's hard. This stuff is difficult. Um, and like for me, it took a few years before the doctors, they tried a whole bunch, over a dozen medications, and none of them worked. Not a single one worked. Um, I, I should have been probably put in psychiatric inpatient ward at Walter Reed when I was still on active duty, but the doctors were trying to be nice to me because I was a general and I was going to retire in a few months, but they probably, by being nice to me and not giving me what I needed, they probably prolonged my, you know, state of mental hell, uh, by a couple of years. Um, so you gotta, you really have to decide that you're going to get better and you want to get better. I would also say to all the veterans out there, um, you know, dealing with the VA is not always easy. It can be, you know, uh, bureaucratic. It can be backed up with a lot of patients. You just have to persevere. You just have to get in there. My experience with them in the mental health arena, every everybody I've dealt with at the VA, and I've dealt with three VAs, um, White River Junction, Vermont, Vieira, Florida, which is my local clinic, and the Orlando VA, once I got into the system, every one of them, psychiatrist, therapist, nurse, you name it, have been excellent. They've been professional, knowledgeable, compassionate, caring. They have my best interests at heart. When something goes wrong and I have an emergency, I mean, I can get a hold of them and they help me. So I think the VA gets kind of a bad rap, which I understand why they do. And I've had problems with other forms of treatment um, that I've gone, you know, to a different source to get get care. But I would just say soldier through it, fight through it, uh, because from my experience, the VA people in terms of mental health have a very, very good understanding of veterans, combat trauma, 
you know, all these issues that veterans in particular face. So I would say fight through it. Um, that's kind of my, my advice. It is great advice, Greg. I mean, and, and I share your, your viewpoint of the VA. I mean, it is a very large system. It can be frustrating, but I, I've had a great experience there. I could get the appointments when I needed them. You have to do things correctly. You know, <laughs> they have their systems of why they do things. And it hasn't been easy with under, under the, the COVID pandemic either, because they did close some services, a lot more, you know, teleconferencing and things like that. But it works. And one of the important things that I, that I think you said, and, and while, you know, making an appointment with your local licensed clinical social worker counselor is a step forward, the true value of a clinical professional evaluation by a psychiatrist, psychologist from a hospital is absolutely critical to getting to a final diagnosis over time. And as you said, it takes time to get there and perseverance to get there. But it's worth it to get your life in order and have a future that you can look forward to with a positive, uplifting viewpoint and really enjoy the quality of life that our veterans have, have earned throughout and their families, especially. Yeah, let me just jump on a, a couple things. Um, you know, going back to the VA for a second, there's a program called Community Care, where if you aren't getting the service you want or the wait times are too long or whatever, you know, you can put in to get community care in the civilian uh, non-governmental community. And every time I've asked for it, they've granted it. So I've done it for eye care. Uh, I've done it for um, dermatology, for a foot doctor. Uh, you know, so they will allow you, you know, they've got their criteria and their rules. But if you don't feel like you're getting the care that you need or want through the VA, say, hey, can I go get community care? And, you know, that's another avenue. Um, the other thing I'll say is, you know, the bad thing about mental health disorders is they're complicated, they're painful, they're hard to diagnose, takes a while to get the right medications and all that. But the good news is if you stick with it, and it might take years, and you get the right treatment and you are disciplined and you stay with your program of total health and fitness, the chances are extremely high that you can live a healthy, happy, successful life. And I mean, the, the success rates for mental health are very, very high. Um, and the other thing I would just say is, you know, you mentioned it earlier on in the talk, virtually everybody in the United States and even in the world is affected in some way by a mental health disorder, either like in the United States, you know, more than one in five Americans have a mental health disorder, and that, that's ones that are known. There's probably twice as many who have a mental health disorder, but it's unknown or undiagnosed. And then, so, you know, one in five, that's uh, over 60 million Americans. And then practically everybody is touched by a family member, a friend, a neighbor, or a work colleague who's going through serious you know, mental illness. And um, so it's virtually everybody. Nobody is untouched by this. So don't feel alone. Exactly, sir. Absolutely. I mean, on the community care program for rural states like Maine, you know, not everybody has a TOGIS VA hospital like we do here in Maine, just down the road. People from Fort Kent, from they have to travel a long ways to get there. So the community care program is very effective within the state of Maine. Absolutely. Sir, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending time with us today and going through this incredible story with all the great advice you offered. I mean, I, I really appreciate you as a friend, as a mentor, as a fellow ranger out there. Hope we get to go hiking again soon. We can visit you down in Florida when we go catch some fish or something. But thank, but, but, <laughs> but thank you again. You know, our, our next program on on this channel is going to be uh, a, a deep dive into what we've discussed uh, as a peripheral issue, you know, central to behavioral health, but the issue of veteran suicide. It's a difficult conversation to have, but we're going to go through some of the latest research, talk about the interpersonal theory of suicidal behavior by Dr. Thomas Joyner, which I think is particularly uh, applicable to our veterans community. We'll go through that. Talk about some of the myths and uh, false narratives around veteran suicide. So we can look forward to, to that, that deep dive um, on, on our next program. 
Greg, Major General Martin, thank you so much for being here with us today. And I really appreciate our audience for tuning in. Hey, Jack, just want to say thanks for doing this and thanks for being a great friend. I mean, you really reached out to me and helped take care of me when I was in pretty bad shape, you know, at your house up in Maine and all the fun stuff we did. And then for the for the audience, you know, do your part to stop the stigma. Do your part to stop this crazy shame and embarrassment. And in doing that, you're going to save lives and families and careers. Well, well, Greg, I also wanted to ask you, uh, before we sign off, can you tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing right now? Let's do a quick plug on that so we can look forward to that coming out. Yeah, thanks. The the book, the manuscript is totally done. It took me about a year. It's about 600 pages. Right now, I'm in the process of, you know, working a deal with a publisher. And so that is a process, you know, it's, it's really kind of a business deal. Um, so working that right now, I think I'll get a publisher in the next month or two, and I think the book will come out in 2022. Essentially, the book is a longer, much more detailed story than what I just talked about on this on this um, on this uh, show, and it goes back and it it traces my you know early years in the army and how the bipolar sort of built up and built up. It goes into the the Iraq experience, and then my experience as a general, how you know I went into full blown bipolar, how I was removed from command, and then the experience of working my way and fighting out of this you know mental hell that I was in, and how that went, and then what I learned from it, the lessons learned, and then how to be a healthier person, and you know what you need to do in in terms of uh, you know staying healthy mentally. I also have perspective from my family, uh, my friends, my work colleagues, and then a lot of lessons learned and conclusions regarding mental health in the military. Excellent. I mean, this is going to be a, a quite a book to read. I mean, as again, we couldn't possibly get into all the detail of it in such a short program. But in our many conversations, I recall some of those moments you know, that were so prolific in this journey. And, I, and I'm sure that the, the, your book will cover all of it. And I look forward to reading it and going through it again. And I hope it will become something of an anthem as we move forward in reducing the stigma against behavioral health treatment and help-seeking behavior as a veteran's uh, population. And for people in general out there in our society, you don't have to be a veteran, of course, to, to glean great value from a book like this. Yes, I agree. Thanks, Jack. Well, sir, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. And uh, thanks to our audience out there. This has been uh, Colonel Retired Jack Mosher for the Veterans and Military Affairs channel on Mainly Matters. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much.